<clears throat> this is the first Sunday of Lent. Um, many of you, we, we're a community church, so I know that some of you have never celebrated Lent. We don't celebrate quite the way the high churches do, but we still set aside the time period of Lent, the season of Lent, for a reason. Here's what the purpose of Lent is. The purpose of Lent is to prepare you for Easter. That's its purpose. This is the first Sunday. Lent officially started this past Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, where we focused on our mortality. The ashes are to remind us of our mortality, that from uh, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And so the first Sunday of Lent is today. So the purpose of Lent is to prepare you for Easter through a variety of things. One is prayer, for example. Um, some of you may not do much praying. Let me encourage you to start. I think you'll very much enjoy it. And as you, as you go throughout the week, learn to trust the Holy Spirit to lead you through that process. Um, I have a deal with the Lord where when I go to sleep at nighttime, if he wakes me up and I'm thinking about some of you or one of you, I stop and pray for you. Uh, every now and then, you know, uh, I wake up 12 times thinking about Scott Price and I have to say, Lord, leave me alone. Let me sleep. You're Scott's issue, not mine. <laughs> Thanks for being a target, Scott. <laughs> and so, um, so as things come to mind, as you're just going about your day, somebody comes to mind, stop and pray for them. Say, Lord, just bless them. Whatever's going on in their life, just help them. Trust the Holy Spirit to guide you through that process. So prayer is one of those things that we do. Another one is what the ancients called mortifying the flesh, ancient to us, putting to death the flesh. If all you do once this week is stop yourself from sinning, you just practice that exercise. So you find yourself starting to get angry and you pause and you say, no, not going to do that. Not going to do that. That's putting to death the flesh. We're actually going to talk more about that one a little bit later on in the series. Repentance of sins. We will do that every week. We'll have a chance to, for you to express your sorrow to the Lord. That's what this is all about. We're focusing on the cross, which leads us to the last one, self-denial. And it's not self-denial just from the, uh, the Buddhist sense of stop thinking. It's self-denial by focusing on the cross and what Jesus did. So this series here, we've called it a radical rescue. This series is designed to help prepare you for Easter, which is coming up on April 1st of this year. So the last series, what went wrong? We asked a whole a bunch of questions. Um, and in this series, we're going to begin answering those questions. And we're going to look at how the New Testament authors thought about these Old Testament problems and questions. As I've said, all the questions that we raise are all being dealt with in this cultural time period. There's writings, Jewish writings that are addressing it. But what actually happened stunned everybody, including the disciples. They were surprised when they began to realize what actually had occurred on Easter weekend. It was different than everybody expected. And sometimes it's hard for us to capture that surprise, that mystery, because we've lived it and we're so comfortable with it. It's hard for us to go back and say, wow, what a surprise that was. But we're going to attempt to do that through this series. We're going to look at the best story of all time. The best story ever told. The best story in the history of the world. It's the most fantastic revolutionary, radical, majestic story in all of world history. And it's the story that the world needs to hear 
We call it the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. We spent some time uh, in the last series arguing that most of us uh, were raised, especially if we're Protestant, to focus on uh, the individual atonement aspect of the cross, and that's correct, it's proper, that's good. But we've tried to expand your horizons so that you understand that that the story of uh, Easter and the cross is far bigger than you and me. It includes all of creation, all of it. God cares and loves this entire creation and every human on the planet. And so the gospel is far bigger than your atonement and forgiveness. That is part of it. It's a critical part. So you'll never hear me downplay that. But I want you to know there's a bigger story that you belong to, and we're going to begin to look at those. We argued in the last series that the destructiveness of sin included the corruption of our vocation. We were created to express our humanity through stewardship, through the stewardship of all of creation. Genesis 1.26, let us make humans in our image so that they can rule over the fish of the sea and the rest of the verses, you know them. We were created to be stewards. That's what we were created for. And then we looked at Exodus 19 briefly in the series where uh, we were created to be priests. And those come together in the New Testament. And we'll come back to this in just a moment. This included caring for one another. Stewarding means caring for one another. Stewarding creation. So it is stewarding everything we see out there. But it's also stewarding each other. Stewarding our, um, our marriages. All of that. Sin caused us to lose our true humanity. That's what happened. Our human capacities, we lost them at the fall. And so all of the reformers wrestled with what does it look like to regain those capacities. I'm not going to try to answer that question other than to say that when Paul uses the technical language of being transformed into the image of Christ, what that means is Christ is the perfect and true human. So as we begin the journey in Christianity to move toward Christ, what happens is those human capacities begin to be restored. We begin to love each other better. We begin to forgive each other quicker. We begin to experience affection for people. We begin to look for ways of being generous. All those things, those are all human capacities that were built by God, created by God to to define our humanity, and those things are being restored. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. Uh, We are looking at the perfect human, Jesus. And now we are learning to be like him and our humanity. And so we ask the question, this is where we left the vocation, how on earth did Christ restore our humanity? How did that happen? How did he do that? How did he restore our vocation? How'd that happen? Well, what I'm going to do in just a moment is take you to the very first sermon in, in Acts chapter 2. It's 50 days after Pentecost. Uh, Peter, you may remember Peter. Uh, Peter is, is wonderful for us for so many reasons. He, like Judas, denied Jesus. He betrayed him. Um, Judas did it once and committed suicide. Peter did it three times. So after Jesus' death on Friday, Peter's gone. All the disciples scattered. They actually all betrayed him. They all went their way. It was a horrible moment. A horrible moment from a physical perspective, from a human perspective, because all their hopes were placed in this Messiah, and here he is gone, dead. And so uh, a few days later, 
Jesus finds Peter on the beach that's captured in the last chapter of John. It is an absolutely beautiful chapter. You've heard pastors probably throughout your lifetime say that uh, Americans, the way we make things important is to say it a second time the same way, just louder. Okay? That's not how the Israelites did it. They repeated it. And so there's one thing we've been told that's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But actually that's not quite true. Because in John there's a second thing that's repeated three times. Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. He said, then take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord. And he said, then feed my sheep. Then he asked him a third time, Peter, do you really love me? And then we see Peter begin to emerge. And he says, with humility, you know all things, Lord, including the fact that I just betrayed you. You know all things. You know that I love you. And so the last chapter of John is a beautiful picture of restoration. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for Peter and what he's done for each of you. It's fabulous. So 50 days later, in Jerusalem at Pentecost, one of the three great festivals, a million, at least a million Jews were present for this great festival. And the Holy Spirit comes and this sound like this incredible wind flows through. All these supernatural things happen and all the Jewish people there are going, what on earth is going on? It's only nine in the morning and they're drunk. So we're going to jump into the middle of Peter's response. And starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Here's the main point that comes out of this first section. The promised Holy Spirit had come. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. That's why he says fellow Jews and those of you that live here, because it's a big festival and there are a bunch of people from out of town. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glory of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The spirit had come. By the way, we're going to be looking at a bunch of verses I'm going to put up here. So I'm going to take you on a journey. Okay. And uh, I want you to capture constellation of verses when you put them together. Help us understand what our true vocation and our new vocation is that Christ accomplished. So here's the very first step. Peter figured out a few basic principles right away. Number one, the Holy Spirit had come. Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 7, uh, 37, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah, and the list goes on and on and on. All prophesied and promised that God would send his spirit. A time of refreshing, renewal, a time when cleansing water would be like cleansing water. All of those things, we would be brought to life. And Peter recognized, and he's quoting Joel, that it had happened. The spirit had come. Then in the next section, resurrection is no longer a dream. 
starting in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's demand and for It was God's plan to Messiah die. But he goes on. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Here we see that intersection between God's deity, sovereignty, and wisdom and our humanity and failings. They do come together. And God makes it work somehow. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, now remember, up until this point, resurrection is only a dream. It's never happened. A lot of debates about whether the resurrection was real. Sadducees didn't believe in it. Pharisees did. A lot of debate back and forth in the Jewish literature on, on resurrection. It was only a topic of discussion. It was not a reality. Peter figured out it's now a reality. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. This is David speaking. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. David says that. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and is still dead. We got his tomb. He's still in it. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So his first point is the Spirit has finally come, life. His second point is that resurrection is no longer a dream. It's now a reality. And it's our reality. It's ours. We will live again. It's our reality. His third point is that Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of God. Acts 30, uh, verse two, verse, chapter 2, verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out that Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand. Exalted to the right hand of God. This is a fulfillment of Daniel, uh, Amos, Joel, and many other places. We are talking about the major event in all of world history. And then he finishes with this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this very thing. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is God and Messiah. His last point is that God has fulfilled his promise to visit his people. He came. He didn't forget. 
So Peter's four points in his very opening sermon, just 50 days after the cross. The promised spirit had come. Resurrection is no longer a dream. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. And God has fulfilled his promise to visit his people. By six o'clock on the Friday, Good Friday, what we call Good Friday, on 6 p.m. of that day, something radical had changed. Everything was different. And we would never go back to the way it was. Everything was different. Heaven and earth were brought together, creating a new temple, a new creation. Uh, We'll talk more about that later in the series. It's one of the things that happened. He had created for himself a new people. Peter again says, I just read Peter. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. So he's talking now to the uh, uh, people, Jewish people who had been scattered around who were Christians. And this is what he said to them in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse uh, 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. There's a new temple. We're going to come back later in the series to this one. But here's the one I'm interested in today. To be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a holy priesthood. And then he quotes Exodus 19.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. In Exodus 19, he uses these same words, but he says there, if you obey my commands fully, I will make you a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And Peter says here, you are a chosen people. What happened between Sinai and Peter? Good Friday. The cross. That's what happened. So here is the tr- our true spiritual reality right here. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a priesthood, every one of you, and not just any kind of priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. The word royal comes from the same word to reign. We are a reigning priesthood. Reigning with Christ. It's another way of saying we are expressing our humanity through stewarding all of creation. That is our job. That is our job. Their very lives were changed in radical ways. For example, in Acts 2, they began selling everything and having things in common. People became important to each other and they started putting each other first to the point of sacrificing everything they have. The long-awaited new age had come. The kingdom of God had come on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday during Lent. To remind us, it has happened. The kingdom had come on earth as it is in heaven. How? The promise of the prophets had been fulfilled. You see, our sins had been forgiven. You're going to hear this theme running through every verse I put up here. Our sins had been forgiven. We are no longer in exile. We are the people of God now living in the kingdom today. So we have a restored vocation. The surprise was that God did not snatch us out of the world. That's a surprise. The other surprise is that he didn't break the Roman oppression. He didn't come as a national king like David. 
Those are the two extremes. No, he did something very different that no one anticipated. He rescued us to be in the world specifically for the benefit of the world. That's what it means to be a priest. He rescued us in the context of this new creation. Specifically for the benefit of that new creation. For the world. It's called stewardship. We are to be true image bearers in each other's lives. This, by the way, was recognized at the very beginning. I'm going to go back now to the beginning of Luke. The Christmas story. You all know the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2. Well, in Luke chapter 1, you have Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's father. And when his son is finally born, remember he's struck deaf because he said, What? What do you mean <laughs> my wife's going to have a son? How will, I, how will I know that? And the angel said, Oh, I'll show you. You can't talk. He couldn't talk until his son was born. When he finally, his tongue is loosed and he's finally able to sing praises, listen to what he says. He glimpsed something new with his son, John the Baptist. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. Think about that. We have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord. Prepare the word him. The knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This is what changed world history. God forgave our sins. That's what allowed a new people to be created. What did Paul say in Ephesians 5? Forgive one another. As Christ has already forgiven you. You're going to see this theme through all these verses. Because of the tender mercy of our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in darkness. That's always a metaphor for Gentiles by the way. And in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the path of peace. Into the path of peace. Peace doesn't come through having the strongest military in the world. Do not be deceived. It's a radically new idea the world had never thought of. Peace will come because his people are peacemakers. And we teach the world how to be peacemakers. In their marriages, in their classrooms, in their families, in their jobs. Wherever they are, we teach them how to be peacemakers. Something radically new. But it doesn't stop there. In Luke chapter 2, Simeon uh, had waited his whole life to hold the baby. And here he's holding the baby Jesus in his arms. Verse 28. Sovereign Lord, he said, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have now seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. There's the promise to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you. God did it. And he was holding the fulfillment of that promise right in his hands. To prepare in the sight of all the nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory 
of your people Israel. Paul saw it. Colossians. Paul summarizes all of New Testament theology in one in two verses. It's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Let me get there. Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Not most of them. All of them. Every sin you have committed and ever will commit has already been forgiven. There it is again. That magical, wonderful, majestic moment when Christ became our sacrifice. God forgave all of your sins. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. It's done. Jesus' last words, it is finished. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. He has disarmed all of our enemies, the very thing that uh, Zechariah prayed for. You have nothing to fear. God can use anything in creation to grow your faith, including Satan and demons. They are created and can only do what God allows. We learned that story from Job. We also learn it in the New Testament. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. He had to ask permission, and God gave it to him. You have nothing to be afraid of. He has disarmed all of it. Disarmed it all. We've been set free. On that Friday on the cross, everything changed. Forgiveness of sins is now a new state of being. It's far more than an event. It's part of your character. It's who you are. It's how you are defined. We'll see in just a minute. Forgiven. That's how you're defined. You're forgiven. This act created a new people of God and a new vocation to be priests. To be priests. So what does this mean? It means that we stand at the uncomfortable intersection between heaven and earth. That's what it means. It means that we stand between genuine worship, which we'll talk about later in the series, on one end, danger, martyrdom, sin, destruction, and evil on the other end. We stand between them. And it is a very risky and dangerous place to be. But that's what it means to be a priest. We stand between God and a broken world as priests and stewards. Get the picture? That's what our vocation is as Christians. The book of Acts records how the early apostles acted as priests standing in that intersection. In Acts chapter 4, for instance, they stand up to governments. They said, you have no power except what God gives you. Do what you want with us. But we can't deny the reality of a risen Savior. John says in 1 John, our hands handled it, our eyes beheld it. We stood back in awe and watched it happen. That's the apostles. You can't take that away from us. He rose from the dead. He is alive. You could take our lives, but it is true. 
In Acts chapter 6 and 7, when Stephen is stoned, that story finishes, he witnesses Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's at that intersection. He's being stoned by murderers, but he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. The priest, by the way, was never allowed to sit down while they were on duty in the temple because that would symbolize the work was finished. So Jesus is always pictured as seated because the work is finished. It is finished. He's always pictured as seated except here where he stands up to to welcome a martyr, to show honor. And so Stephen is standing between murderers and eternity as a priest. And he sees Jesus standing. And then what does he do? He prays for them like Jesus did. Forgive them. The very people that are killing him, forgive them. That's a priest. That is a priest. The rest of Acts is all the story of how the apostles acted as priests and stood at that intersection. We are God's representatives on earth. We reveal the kingdom to our neighbors, relatives, friends. We intercede on their behalf. We are not interested in vengeance. We are not interested in war. We are not interested in strength through military might. Let God worry about all that. Don't get me wrong, I'm a veteran. I'm thankful I served, and I'm thankful for the men and women that are serving now. But that's not where our hope is. And that's not where peace is going to come. My goodness, we've got 150 years of war after war after war. It didn't solve the problem. True peace comes because of who we are in Christ. We are to be peacemakers, praying for our murderers, our enemies, and telling them the truth. You see, a priest does three things in the Old Testament, which carries forward into the New. We bring God to the people, we bring the people to God, and then we bless the people. Just like Stephen did. As he's dying, Lord, forgive them. Same as Jesus. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. So this helps us what it understands. Well, I mean, helps us understand what it means to be a witness for God. It's not about walking around with trite sayings. Oh, it is true that your sins have caused you to uh, eventually go to punishment. That's true. And it's true that Christ, that was never presented in the Acts, in the book of Acts, in their evangelistic sermons. No. Being a true witness is, is an announcement that a new state of affairs has come into being. We are part of a new kingdom. It means seeing people with very different eyes. I'm going to go to one more passage, one well-known to you, at least part of it. 2 Corinthians 5. This is Paul. Listen to these words. Everybody knows this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. How many of you have heard that verse? Most of you. Okay, listen to the beginning of the paragraph. So from now on, we no longer regard or evaluate anyone from a worldly point of view, though that is how we used to evaluate Christ. He shouldn't have died. 
That was a failure. How could he be the Messiah? He died. That's how we evaluated him. No, no, no. We no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled to us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ's death. In Christ. That's what he means. Not counting people's sins against them. You have been forgiven. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The word righteousness at its very root means justice. So that we might become the righteousness of God out in the world. So that we might become the justice of God out in the world. You've heard me say there's no billboard. God is glorious. There's no plane with a banner flying behind. No, no, no. We are his props. We're it. We are his righteousness out in a broken world. That's what that means. We are to see people with very different eyes and quit defining. You like to complain. I know that. I hear your complaints. Some of you struggle with pornography. Some of you struggle with lust. Some of you struggle with lying, anger. We no longer evaluate people according to that standard. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. Start looking at people with different eyes. So imagine, just for a moment... Seeing the worst in all of creation, the very worst person you've ever heard of, including a school shooter. Imagine looking at him through the lens that God uses. God has forgiven. Their freedom is within their grasp. Genuine joy is right in front of them. Or as Paul says at Mars Hill, salvation is very close to every one of us. They are worthy of our deepest love. No matter how evil or messed up they are, this is how God sees them. This is what it means to be a priest. So what is keeping you from being a priest? Pride? Arrogance? Vengeful heart? What is it? What keeps you from being a priest? Father, we are uh, so very grateful that you loved us. You didn't abandon us. You remembered us. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. And uh, as I say every Sunday, thank you all for being so generous, for taking good care of our church. i